Hi, it's Tom Panneries, and I want to come in at the top of the show here to say that this is one of a series of episodes that will cover the events of September 11, 2001, along with the popular culture about it. Though these events are now 20 years in the past, they are still traumatizing to many, and I wanted to give you a heads up that listener discretion is advised. If you choose to listen, and you have thoughts, comments, or points you'd like to make, I would love to hear your feedback. Send me an email at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Comment on the Facebook post at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. Or find me on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. All of these larger matters are far off screen. The third act of the film focuses on the desperation on board United 93 after the hijackers take control, slash flight attendants kill the pilots and seem to have a bomb. We are familiar with the details of this flight, pieced together from many telephone calls from the plane and from the cockpit voice recorder. Greengrass is determined to be as accurate as possible. There is no false grandstanding, no phony arguments among the passengers, no individual heroes. The passengers are a terrified plane load of strangers. After they learn by phone about the World Trade Center attacks, after an attendant says she saw the dead bodies of the two pilots, they decide they must take action. They storm the cockpit. Even as these brave passengers charge up the aisle, we know nothing in particular about them. None of the details we later learned. We could be on the plane, terrified, watching them. The famous words, let's roll, are heard but not underlined. These people are not speaking for history. There has been much discussion of this movie's trailer, and no wonder. It pieces together moments from United 93 to make it seem more conventional, more like a thriller. Dialogue that seems absolutely realistic in context sounds in the trailer like sound bites and punchlines. To watch the trailer is to sense the movie that Greengrass did not make. To watch United 93 is to be confronted with the grim, chaotic reality of that September day in 2001. The movie is deeply disturbing, and some people may have to leave the theater. But it would have been much more disturbing if Greengrass had made it in a conventional way. He does not exploit, he draws no conclusions, he points no fingers, he avoids human interest and personal dramas, and just simply watches. The movie's point of view reminds me of the angels in Wings of Desire. They see what people do and they are saddened, but they cannot intervene. That's the last two paragraphs of Roger Ebert's review of United 93, the Paul Greengrass film that debuted in 2006 and was a critically acclaimed depiction of the events of that flight, which was the flight that was brought down in a field near Shanksville, Pennsylvania by passengers who managed to overrun the cockpit. 
therefore preventing it from reaching its target. It's one of three movies I'm going to talk about, along with one episode of a primetime television series, and this, the fourth episode in a six-episode miniseries about 9-11 and popular culture, brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm Tom Panneries, and what I want to do over the course of these six episodes is examine the books, movies, music, comics, and other popular culture that directly addresses or is about the attacks of September 11th, 2001. Each episode is going to focus on a different medium, and I'm going to spend time reviewing them as well as evaluating their effectiveness and capturing the moments and feelings of the day. We use our culture to both memorialize and interpret events, and with 20 years gone since that day, it's time we look at whether or not those pieces accomplished what they set out to do. Now, I will tell you up front that I'm not going to be able to talk about every single piece of popular culture that is about 9-11, and will mostly stick to what I've read, watched, or listened to, or what had any sort of effect on me. So there will be a lot that I do not talk about, and you are welcome to let me know what I might be missing. But keep in mind that even though I'm going for some talk about history and popular culture here, I'm also going to speak from a very personal place, and that means that some of my preferences and biases might be on display. I think I'll also take a moment to tell you that while I'll be getting into people's visions, interpretations, or fictionalizations of 9-11, I will not be getting into anything regarding conspiracy theories. I personally find them, 9-11 trutherism and everything else associated with it, to be morally repugnant. Last episode, I covered literature. This time around, I'm turning my attention to film and television. For this episode, I'm going to be looking at 2006's United 93 and the film World Trade Center, which were two marquee 9-11 films from that year. And then I will take a look at a short film collection entitled September 11th. I will also spend time looking at Isaac and Ishmael, a special episode of NBC's The West Wing, which aired on October 3rd, 2001. I will make one more note that I'm not going to be talking about documentaries in this episode, and I really will not be doing a di- deep dive in, uh, into documentaries in this series. I do have one that I want to mention, one or two that I'm going to mention in my final episode, but for the most part, I'm going to be covering fictional films and television episodes um, in this episode and in the series as a whole. Those Langley birds over Washington. Surveillance. I want you to hit up tracks west of Cleveland, heading towards Las Vegas. Hit up, light me up every track you've got. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's keep going here. Let's keep working. ID, what do you got? He's off course. He's deviated. We don't know why. Confirmed. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Confirmed hijacking. That's the question. What are we going to do now? There's something hit. Uh, the Pentagon on the outside of the fifth corridor, uh, I mean, Army Corps, several Army officers I've talked to reported hearing a big explosion. Seeing Listen, I'm not, I'm not taking any more chances. We got stuff flying around we have no control over. And I don't want a board full of these planes hitting every building on the East Coast. This is a national emergency. Everyone lands regardless of destination. That's going to cost me billions. Just do it. We have hundreds of international flights coming in. They're already in the air. No, no I, don't, I don't want any more international flights crossing the borders. They don't have to go back where they came from. Nobody's coming into the country from now on. Everyone? Everyone. Shut off the East Coast. Shut off all the international from Europe. Shut off South America. Shut off the West Coast. Nothing over the top either. Right, we're gonna call Canada. Yeah, Canada too. Shut down the airspace. I can't, I can't accept anybody. No. Nobody takes off. 
land them all. Take a moment. Think about this. We're going to put. We're going to shut down the entire country right now. That's right. Listen, we're at war with someone, and until we figure out what to do about it, we're shutting down. That's it. We're finished. While it's not the first film to be released that centers around 9-11, United 93 is probably the first that many took notice of. Paul Greengrass, who has also directed a number of the Jason Bourne movies with Matt Damon, as well as the Tom Hanks film Captain Phillips, employs a cast of mostly unknowns in retelling the story, as he did not want any star power to distract from the importance of said story. And truly, this works, as there were only three people I recognized from other films or TV series, one of which has been in more notable roles since, and that's actor Cheyenne Jackson, who plays Mark Bingham. The other two actors I recognized were Rebecca Schull, who played Faye on the NBC sitcom Wings, and David Rash, who 80s kids will recognize as Sledgehammer. But again, you've got to be me level of recognizing television actors from the 80s to know that Sledgehammer played a guy on United 93. Also notable about this cast is that a number of the people in the film weren't actors at all, but were either actual pilots or flight attendants in the case of some of the members of the plane's crew, or they were air traffic controller military personnel who were actually working on September 11th. They were playing themselves and what they did on that day. The film was also made in cooperation and conjunction with a number of the victims' families to ensure a level of authenticity and respect for the material. It hit theaters in April 2006, and it grossed $31.4 million domestically and received good reviews as well as two Academy Award nominations for Best Film Editing and Best Director. Now, if I'm being completely honest, it was not a movie I was ever interested in seeing. In fact, when I saw the trailer, which you heard Roger Ebert talk about in the um, beginning of this episode, I was one of those people who was kind of offended by it. I was offended by it that somebody would make a docudrama about 9-11 because it does come off as like TV movie sensationalist. And granted, I was also picturing the disaster porn that we'd been seeing for like the past 10 years at that point. You know, the Michael Bay and the Roland Emmerich films. In fact, I don't think I would have seen United 93 if I hadn't decided to watch it for this podcast episode. So, that being said, I'm glad I did. After a brief prologue where the terrorists wake up in their hotel rooms and get ready to head to Newark Airport, the film begins with the passengers arriving at the departure gate and proceeds in real time to the moment where the plane crashes into a field outside of Shanksville, Pennsylvania. I'm really not going to do a huge plot recap because the plot is what should be familiar to everyone who knows the story. And in order to see the entirety of the morning's events, we cut between what's going on on United 93 and then the uh, the National Air Traffic Control Center in North Virginia, air traffic control centers in Boston, New York, Long Island, and uh, Cleveland. So in order to show the crashes of the planes, because we are cutting to outside of, of United 93, you know, so the crash of the planes into the towers in the Pentagon, Paul Greengrass, who directed the film, decides to rely on archival CNN footage that's shown on screen at the centers, and he recreates the various messages and phone calls that the crew and the passengers of the flight received and made before the plane went down. The IMDb trivia page points out a small number of factual errors, and there's the disclaimer toward the end credits that mentions that it's as accurate as possible. Of course, we do know that the passengers of United 93 overtook the terrorists and stormed the cockpit, but the blow-by-blow account we're getting here is also speculative, as we don't have the video footage of the events. Still, 
Greengrass avoids sensationalizing the moment. In fact, he uses tight, often handheld filmmaking to create tension and urgency throughout the film, and the fight at the end is so fast and brutal that it seems like it is really happening right in front of you. Not only that, but he builds up to it using that real-time narrative and relies on the audience's pre-existing knowledge of 9-11 to keep us all on edge. The first time that really gets heightened is right after American Airlines Flight 11 hits the North Tower. The guys at the Air Traffic Control Center have lost contact with it on radar, and they hear about what's reported as a small aircraft having crashed into the building, something that many people thought was the case. And it's not until they put on CNN on one of the big viewing monitors in this facility that they put two and two together and realized that they lost Flight 11 off the radar because it crashed into the tower. And then the film goes on for 17 more minutes with the shot of one burning tower in the background as air traffic control and the military try to figure out what has happened. The entire time that's going on, you're waiting as the audience for the second plane to hit because you've seen that footage at least 100 times. And even if you haven't watched it in years, it's burned into your memory. Like, you know what's going to look like. You know it's going to happen. So you keep looking for it to happen. You keep watching the background. You keep wondering when it's going to happen. And these 17 minutes of the film take forever because you know what's going to happen. And you really are trying to pay attention to the plot, but you watch those screens behind the actors. And when the moment comes, when the plane comes on the screen, at least this was my reaction. I was watching it and the plane came on the screen. And I, like I said, I've seen it a hundred times, but I literally said, oh fuck, when it hit the tower. And it's really one of two scenes that makes me not able to watch the film again. The other is the ending from the farewell phone calls that the passengers who now know what's going on and they've decided to do something make to the final shot of the ground that just looms closer and closer and closer. Greengrass decides not to show a plane crash from the outside, but from the inside. He decides not to show the explosion or anything. We just cut to black after the ground just gets so close that we know the plane has crashed. And what he does there is conclude what's a visceral piece of filmmaking. And I totally understand why it got a nomination for uh, editing at the Academy Awards. In fact, I wouldn't watch this if you're easily triggered by very realistic portrayals of violence. But I, like I said, if, if you aren't and you feel like, you know, maybe I should see this movie, probably should. Greengrass's portrayal is as realistic and close to straightforward as he can possibly get. And uh, not only that, he portrays the terrorists very well. And I'll expand on that. By this time in film, the Arab terrorist had become somewhat of a stock villain, often written in a characteristic manner that played into stereotypes, a number of which were racist, or reinforced the racist attitude that associated people of the Muslim faith with terrorism. What Greengrass does in United 93 is humanize them a little bit. Not in a way that we're supposed to sympathize with them or be on their side. They're still shown committing brutal acts that are wholly evil. And they're clearly the villains of our story. But he gives them enough humanity to make them realistic 
They're at points nervous. They're impatient, even though they're determined. Their violence is still brutal and deliberate. There's no mustache twirling monologuing. And that makes them kind of scary. So when Todd Beamer and another um, other passengers get ready to head down the aisle, you're ready for them to do it. And not in a fuck yeah, get them Rambo sort of way, but almost like you're begging them to to just end this. You want them to try to take over the plane so that even if they can't save themselves, they can save the people in Washington who are going to die if the plane hits the Capitol or the White House. The heroism displayed in United 93 is one that should be met with gratitude and reflection, not jingoism. And I think the film does an outstanding job of reminding us of that. The film is available for streaming on Amazon at the moment. It's a $3.99 rental, though. Uh, it is worth it, like I said. Um, if, if, you can, if you can handle that sort of violence, the very visceral, up-close violence, if you can handle seeing footage on that level that's going to feel very realistic, go rent it uh, at least once. It's not something I would own or rent again. Next up in my, in my look at films is another film that portrays true stories about 9-11, and that is World Trade Center. Roll call working Tuesday, September 11. Color for the day is green. As always, protect yourselves, watch each other's backs. We have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. Prepared for everything. Not this. Not for some of this size. There's no plan. Okay, listen up. You gotta evacuate the tower. Who's coming? Step forward. I got it, Sarge. I'll go. Sarge. All right. Follow me. Stay together. Released in August 2006 and ultimately grossing $70.2 million domestically, World Trade Center was the second notable wide-release film about 9-11 that year. 
Directed by Oliver Stone, it tells the story of John McLaughlin, played by Nicolas Cage, and Will Jimeno, played by Michael Pena, two Port Authority police officers who were trapped under several floors worth of rubble in the World Trade Center while they were evacuating the South Tower from the mall level, and it collapsed. They're trapped there for several hours until they are found by Marine Staff Sergeant John Krause, played by Michael Shannon, who had made his way from Connecticut to New York after seeing the attacks on television, as well as Marine Sergeant Jason Thomas, William Mapather. The film concludes with their rescue and a note that McLaughlin and Jimeno were two of the 20 people who were found alive in the wreckage of the World Trade Center and eventually rescued. The film, of course, is a dramatization of a true story and has a cast of pretty notable actors. I mentioned Cage, who headlines the film, and would probably have been the most notable cast member at the time. Pena was a consistent character actor who had a breakout role in Crash, the 2004 Best Picture winner. Maggie Gyllenhaal played his wife, Allison. Maria Bello, who had been on ER in the late 90s and done a number of independent films, was Cage's uh, character's wife, Donna McLaughlin. I mentioned Michael Shannon. He would later play General Zod and Man of Steel a number of years later. And William Mapather, who is one of the leading Hey, It's That guys at the moment. But there are also appearances by Frank Whaley, Stephen Dorff, and most notably Viola Davis, who had already had a prestigious stage career, but would have a breakthrough in Hollywood in 2011 when she starred in The Help. As for the director, this isn't a film that I associate with Oliver Stone, who was noted for conspiracy movies like JFK and more surreal films like The Doors and Natural Born Killers. Yeah, he directed Wall Street and A Given Sunday, and those were more straightforward in their presentation, but Stone was not one that you would expect to deliver a sincere film about a tragedy. And while he would go on to direct W, starring Josh Brolin in 2008, he does a very good job reining in his style and tendencies, instead using his experience to give the story its necessary gravitas. What helps the film is that the actors in the production are also show the necessary level of commitment. World Trade Center isn't some cheap flick meant to make a buck off a tragedy or a slapped-together television movie. Cage, for all of his being parodied in recent years, is a great choice for the role of John McLaughlin, because although he was born and raised in California, Cage has the tenor and can accurately mimic the accent and mannerisms of someone from the New York tri-state area. In fact, a number of the actors pull off the accents, which is not an easy task, as that can often fall into a cheap imitation of either Robert De Niro or Fran Drescher. It's a tough movie for them to carry, as while Cage and Pena have to basically put on a two-man show while they're trapped under the rubble, Bello and Gyllenhaal have to play the wives who spend the afternoon and evening of September 11th worrying and hoping while their families are around. Both actors are great, and I would argue that Bella is an overall underrated actress. She matches Cage's pathos, even though they don't share a lot of screen time during the moment. So it's a good movie, and certainly entertaining. But like United 93, I did have to go into it asking myself whether or not it needed to be made. Stone was certainly not trying to exploit anything. He'd worked with the real-life people that his actors were portraying, as well as their families, on the script and production. He brought in technical experts from the Port Authority Police and other agencies who were first responders on the day. 
His effort was actually to show an accurate portrayal of one of the stories from 9-11 that was considered heroic and hopeful and not be sensationalistic. He doesn't gloss over what happened either. That's a tough needle to thread. You're committing to film a specific act of terrorism that took place only five years prior to the production. How much of it do you show? In the film's case, we follow the police officers as they arrive at work and find out about things, and we do get some disaster footage when they arrive on scene with some quick shots of bodies falling from the towers, one of the towers on fire, and debris raining down on people on the street. Otherwise, Stone goes for the claustrophobic and even scarier feel of being inside the lower mall levels of the building when it collapses. He doesn't cut away to footage of the collapse. It's probably best, too. Keeps the accuracy of McLaughlin and Jimeno's stories and keeps us in there with them. And while Stone does get schmaltzy and a little too into the myth-making side of the storytelling at times, I think he toes the line fairly well. My favorite scene in this whole movie, by the way, has nothing to do with McLaughlin and Jimeno's being rescued or trapped. It's a scene where Allison... Maggie Gyllenhaal, who is very pregnant through the whole movie, by the way, is overwhelmed by waiting for any word on her husband as well as the massive family members that have descended on her New Jersey home. She obviously needs to get out of the house, so she uses picking up her kids, whom she sent down the street to watch cartoons at a neighbor's, as an excuse to do so. When she walks to the neighbor's, we get a shot of her in the street flanked on either side by houses, whose only light comes from televisions. And we all know that everyone inside these houses is watching the news. It's a moment that lasts maybe 30 seconds, but captures the atmosphere of that night so incredibly well. But like I said, did it need to get made? For as good as it is, I think that this and United 93 are not going to be Torah, 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 The Longest Day, or Saving Private Ryan. They're probably going to be the type of film that gets a mention around 9-11 anniversaries and will pop up in an algorithm-based list on the streaming service, much like they would have warmed a video store shelf in the action or drama sections after their time in the new release shelf was done. But not so much as an official film of 9-11. I don't think we're there yet. And like I said, I wonder if we need to be. The next film I'm going to talk about is called September 11th or 11901, which was its international release title. And it is a uh, short film collection. So this film kind of gets a pass on the should this have been made question because it's not a Hollywood production. And it's really more the film equivalent of those comic book compilations I talked about in episode two. Conceived by French producer Alain Bergand, it is 11 short films shot by filmmakers from different countries, all of which are 11 minutes, 9 seconds, and 1 frame long. All of them are interpretive, some are personal, others political. 
Some of the political films land on the supportive and even empathetic side, with filmmakers from Iran, Egypt, and Bosnia-Herzegovina. These are pieces where people express their sadness over what has happened, and in some cases seek to say that they understand what the United States is going through at that moment, as they have endured similar tragedies. Others with a political theme are more critical of the United States, pointing out either its faults or the way it seems to always command attention. The more personal, human-focused stories are ones of people reacting to or experiencing the tragedies or are metaphorical in their approach. What I've decided to do is take a quick look at four of them that stood out to me. The first is by Iranian filmmaker Samira Makhambaf. My apologies if I butcher some of these names here who sets her film in an Afghan refugee camp in Iran where the people are working on building new shelters and talk about possible attacks from the United States. The news of the 9-11 attacks reaches the camp and a teacher attempts a lesson to her young students about the importance of what just happened, but she is unsuccessful as the kids act like squirmy kids tend to act. She then imposes a moment of silence on them and makes them do so at a chimney because it's the closest thing that any of them has to a skyscraper. My second one is by Mira Nair, who is Indian and tells the story of a Pakistani woman living in New York who has not heard from her son since the attacks. She is then questioned by the CIA and FBI and even sees herself and her son on the news as someone with a possible link to the attack. Six months later, her son's body is found in the rubble. He'd gone downtown to help and was killed in the tower's collapse. At his funeral, she denounces the Islamophobia in the United States. Now, these two stand out to me because they have Muslim characters, and in the case of the Iranian film, are from a Muslim director, and they present perspectives that we didn't necessarily get when hearing stories related to the attacks. The latter short film does a succinct job at dispelling the myth of complete togetherness as Americans on September 12th, highlighting our outright racism, which, to be honest, was already there, but heightened by the events of the attacks. I'm sure that a number of people would rationalize that by pointing out who the terrorists were or even say that their already existing feelings were justified, which are wrong and undermine the idea that America is somehow a society of tolerance or has some sort of moral, moral rightness to it. You can't claim moral superiority when you're indiscriminately attacking brown people. <laughs> you also can't use being caught up in the moment as an excuse when you're supposedly a fully formed and informed adult. Anyway, with the Iranian film, I felt empathy with the teacher trying to get her students to pay attention, but that's not why I chose it. I chose it because it's also yet another way to undermine the media narrative about Iran, which because of the 1979 hostage crisis has always been monolithic and negative. Iran is always presented in our media as dark, evil, a state of a religious extremism where we are hated as a country. We're called the Great Satan. It's kind of the religious fundamental version of North Korea. On 9-11 and 9-12, there were media images of people in other countries celebrating the attacks and burning flags. I'm sure that if you ask someone where those images came from, Iran might have been one of the answers, though Iraq might have been on that list as well, something the Bush administration certainly wanted us to think. And instead of actually educating ourselves to understand that the Iranian people were not all sitting around hating us 24-7, we have filmmakers who feel the need to show us that they understand and know how monumental of a tragedy this is. Another more political film that is definitely critical of the United States is 
by British filmmaker Ken Loach. The main character is a Chilean exile who is writing a letter to the American people telling them about what he remembers September 11th for, which is the date in 1973 when Augusto Pinochet led a U.S.-backed coup to overthrow Salvador Allende, a popular democratically elected president who was too left-wing for our government's tastes. He details the atrocities of the Pinochet regime and how many who had supported the Allende government fled for fear of being tortured or executed and he says he has not returned to Chile since. The film ends with him promising to remember the victims of the 9-11 attacks and hopes that the American people will remember the victims of September 11th, 1973. And here is a piece that outwardly highlights some of the actions that the United States government has taken in the past that undermines the idea that American was somehow innocent or, quote, lost its innocence on 9-11. Sure, you can say that an entire generation did lose its innocence that day, but again, that's not part of what the media was pushing in its narrative in the immediate aftermath. Loach's short film does seek to at least answer one question of how this could happen to us. It's not victim blaming. It's an effort to get us to add some nuance to our thoughts and our reactions, something that Americans are notoriously terrible at doing. I mean, even our president at the time took a you're either with us or against us approach to things an approach that does so much damage to one's intellectual capability as well as their free will. Loach is not asking any American to have Pinochet's coup supersede or memorializing 9-11. He wants us to simply recognize it as well, which is much different and actually more hopeful than critical. Now, not all the short films here are political, of course, like I mentioned. Sean Penn directs Ernest Borgnine in a one-man show where he works through his grief by talking to his deceased wife, there's a film directed by Claude Leloup from France that is a sad romantic piece between a deaf woman and her lover who is a tour guide in New York City. And there's a film by Idrissa Uadrogo of Burkina Faso, which is almost funny in a way. I'm going to read the Wikipedia summary of this one. In September 2001, Adama is a boy who is forced to leave school and work as a newsboy in order to be able to pay for medicines to his sick mother. Two weeks after the attacks, Adama sees a man very similar to Osama bin Laden and decides to capture him with the help of his friends in order to claim the prize of $25 million pending on his boss. The boys decide to use that money to treat Adama's mother and potentially many other sick people in the country, as well as not to say anything to the adults to prevent them from wasting any money of the prize. The boys steal the camera of one of their parents and start to follow this Osama bin Laden to a clearing where every day he goes to pray. The five of boys therefore devise a plan to capture him in that clearing, but the bin Laden does not show up that day. The boys try to capture him at the hotel, but they discover that the man is now going to the airport, where they are stopped by policemen before they can enter. In the end, the boys decide to sell the camera and give Adama the money so he can look after his mother and go back to school. It's both a sad and cute film, and it does a good job of showing how our lives, while affected by a tragedy on the level of 9-11, continued in spite of it, and the tragedies and sadness that we were already dealing with continued in spite of it as well. Now, if you're not the type who wants to contemplate such things or wants to contemplate any of the political or cultural aspects of 9-11 that show the United States in anything other than the positive light, this isn't a film overall that you'd enjoy. Still, 
I thought it was pretty good. I recommend seeking out this September 11th or 11901, however it's being packaged, on a streaming service. Uh, the service Canopy, which many local libraries subscribe to, had it at one point. It might be available on Amazon for a rental. And now I'm going to turn my attention to my final piece, a television episode that was written and produced in a mere three weeks, and that is Isaac and Ishmael, which aired on October 3rd, 2001, and marked the beginning of the third season of The West Wing. Isaac and Ishmael is what those who study television would call a very special episode. It was written and filmed within three weeks, and when originally aired, featured introductions from the cast who mentioned that the subject matter was going to be terrorism and was written as a response to the events of 9-11. The West Wing's opening theme does not make an appearance. Instead, we get a cold open at an FBI office where two officers are doing a database search and one of the aliases of a known terrorist shows up on the roster of White House employees. This sets off what is essentially a bottle episode. A bottle episode, by the way, is when all the action of an episode is confined to a single space. The White House goes into lockdown, and most of the episode takes place in the mess cafeteria, where Josh Lyman, played by Bradley Whitford, and Donna Moss, played by Janelle Maloney, escort a group of students who are part of a presidential scholars program when the White House goes into lockdown. Parallel to this is the detainment of an an interrogation of Rakim Ali, who's played by Ajay Nadu, who uh, played Samir in Office Space. Um, And he's detained by Leo McGarry, White House Chief Chief of Staff, who is played by John Spencer. The interrogation of Rakim is an example of mistaken identity combined with racial profiling. Rakim had been detained because his name matched an alias of a known terrorist. He is not the terrorist, and in fact, said terrorist is arrested in Germany before the episode is over. But during the entire time he's speaking with the Secret Service and Leo, he is treated as one. Leo's line of questioning is such that he more or less flat out tells Rakeem that he fits a certain profile, and it's a moment that seems a little out of character for him as he's a lot more rational and steady, but that's obviously the point. John Spencer would go on to win an Emmy for his role on the show, and he is outstanding in this episode. He plays Leo as desperately trying to keep his cool while also pressing Rakeem for information. It's way more nuanced than Kiefer Sutherland's performances as Jack Bauer on 24. And that was a show that certainly had its share of stereotypical portrayals of Middle Eastern terrorists. Ajay Naidu's portrayal of Rakim is also what makes this particular portion of the episode outstanding because he can not only match Spencer's energy, but he plays Rakim as someone who is skeptical and indignant and not afraid to push back on the accusations leveled against him. 
as he should, of course, because while it's more than appropriate for the White House to be alarmed by what winds up being a coincidence, the amount of intimidation and hostility used in the situation is not, even if it is realistically portrayed. And Rakim appropriately points out that the person who had attempted to assassinate the president in a prior season was a white supremacist, not an Islamic terrorist. This eventually leads to Leo stopping by Rakim's desk after everything is over and apologizing to him in a moment that is tough and honest. A demonstration of the strength of the actors involved. And it's also some of Aaron Sorkin's best writing of the entire episode. While this is all going on, we have essentially what is an extended civics lesson in the White House mess hall. Over the course of the episode's 40-minute runtime, each of the principal characters from the show comes in to talk about terrorism and security with the students. Josh begins by trying to answer the very tough question, why do they hate us? And does three important things. One, he goes right to the heart of the racist Muslim equals terrorist stereotype by setting up the analogy of Islamic terrorists are to Islam as the Ku Klux Klan is to Christianity. Two, he builds on that point by pointing out that these are hardline, violent fundamentalists who abhor a pluralistic society, and that's what America is. Three, he points out that America as a country is not completely innocent when it comes to the reason why an organization like Al-Qaeda would attack us. We have alliances they oppose, policies they say hurt them, sanctions against them or their allies, and a military presence in the Middle East that they want gone. Toby Ziegler, played by Richard Schiff, adds more perspective by equating Afghanistan under the Taliban to Poland under Nazi occupation during the Second World War. C.J. Craig, played by Allison Janney, who up until Jen Psaki was the best White House press secretary ever, even if she was entirely fictional, talks about the role of the intelligence community. Sam Seaborn, played by Rob Lowe, elucidates more on terrorists and where they come from. Charlie Dulé Hill puts what Sam says into perspective by talking about coming from one of the rougher areas of Southeast D.C. and how that helps him understand the mentality of someone who joins a terrorist organization. And President Bartlett, played by Martin Sheen, and the First Lady, played by Stocker Channing, make appearances with the President laying out the differences between martyrs and heroes, saying that while a martyr will die for a cause or country, a hero is willing to do the same but would rather live. And the First Lady tells the story of the myth of Isaac and Ishmael. It's a series of scenes that's meant to educate the audience. Sorkin writes it pretty well, albeit a little heavy-handed in places. The students are obviously meant to be the viewers, but by making them into high school students who are high achieving, he signals that he trusts our intelligence and does his best to bring nuance to the conversation by offering up multiple perspectives. The characters have their usual banter with one another and are full of the attitude they display on a regular basis, which is sometimes a little awkward or hasn't aged well and other times blends in smoothly with the serious conversation that's taking place. What stayed with me, though, is a phrase that Josh uses at the end of the episode. Before all the kids start to file out of the cafeteria, he goes back to his point about pluralism, saying, you want to get these people where they live? Keep accepting more than one idea. It makes them crazy. As I write this episode, I'm both looking at and living in a time where complex ideas are oversimplified and therefore often misconstrued for the purposes of misapplication or propaganda. 
As I mentioned in the comics episode following 9-11, there was a significant amount of public hatred and hate toward Arab Americans, Muslims, and even people of other faiths who happened to have brown skin but fit a particular, quote, profile. Well, President Bush at the time did remind the public not to stereotype and not to equate Islam with terrorism. That message didn't land as well as it should have. And you can say that we never really had the conversation we needed to have. Instead, we as a culture let the trolls take over while we hid behind flag memes and statements about heroes, allowing them to create boogeymen for people to be afraid of, and also to guide a number of people toward a simple, even fundamentalist mindset. Josh's analogy at the beginning about the KKK is apt, and something I saw on display to an extreme degree in the years after 9-11, especially in the past five years, sometimes to violent, devastating ends. Critical thinking, accepting more than one idea, this drives those people crazy because it takes away their power. It's one of the best messages of anything I saw after 9-11, and really still one of the most important ones today. So like I said up top, this is a quick sample of a number of the films that either directly or indirectly portray or address 9-11, and I'd like to say thanks for coming along on this fourth part of the miniseries. In part five, I will be looking at music. Until then, I wanted to let you know that I am setting aside a portion of episode six to answer any feedback I get on this series, so please drop me a line at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com or get in touch with me on Twitter and Facebook. Not only would I like to hear your feedback, but I'd like to hear your stories, either what you remember about that day or the thoughts you have 20 years later. And as always, thanks for listening, and take care. This has been 9-11 in Popular Culture, which is presented by Pop Culture Affidavit and the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. The producer and narrator is Tom Paneris. Background music is by Sanji, MD Sabir Khan, Royalty Free Music, and Dick DeRitter, all of which are used via the Creative Commons license. Other clips used in this series are done so under fair use. Show notes are available at popcultureaffidavit.com. Emails can be sent to me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram at popcultureaffidavit. And on Twitter at popaff. That's P-O-P-A-F-F. Thank you very much for listening.